When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Chino Hills, California. The area of Chino Hills used to be an unincorporated area of the city of Chino until 1991 when it incorporated and became its own city. Located in San Bernardino County, which is the largest county in the contiguous U.S. and close to the size of West Virginia, Chino Hills has a unique location in Southern California. It is the only city that borders a different county on each of its four borders, Los Angeles, Orange, Riverside, and San Bernardino counties. After Mission San Gabriel was founded in 1771, the lands of Chino Hills were used for grazing by Mission cattle. Today, Chino Hills is well known for its high quality of life, equestrian properties, and beautiful rural atmosphere. The community has a population of almost 78,000 and boasts 3,000 acres of publicly owned open space, 44 parks, and 48 miles of riding trails. But in 1983, this idyllic place to raise your children became a real-life nightmare for one wholesome family. Eight-year-old Joshua Ryan lived with his parents, Douglas and Peggy, and his 10-year-old sister, Jessica. They lived on a six-acre horse ranch in Chino Hills, California. Doug and Peggy were chiropractors with an office in Orange County and had purchased the ranch 10 years prior to raise Arabian horses as a hobby and a business. The horses kept the Ryans so busy that Peggy cut her time in their chiropractic office to one day a week. On Saturday, June 4, 1983... The Ryan family went to a barbecue at a friend's house in Los Serranos, an upscale neighborhood a few miles from the Ryan's home. Eight-year-old Joshua invited his 11-year-old friend Christopher Hughes to the barbecue with him because they were going to have a sleepover at the Ryan's home. After a fun night with friends at the barbecue, the Ryans and Chris arrived at the Ryan residence that night between 9 and 9.30 p.m. The next morning, Chris's mother, Mary Hughes, became concerned when her son did not return home. And she called the Ryan's home several times, but only got a busy signal. And if you don't know what a busy signal is, (laughs) you've never heard one. (laughs) Ask your parents. (laughs) So shortly after 9 a.m., Chris's mom went to the Ryan's home. When Mary returned home, she told her husband, William, that she thought something was wrong because the Ryan home seemed eerily quiet. She then went back to the Ryans a second time, but still did not see anyone. When she got home from her second trip to the Ryans' house, Chris's father, William, went there himself to investigate, and this is about 11 a.m. William saw the family station wagon was not in the driveway, but their truck was. He knew that the Ryans typically did not lock their doors, but when he tried to open the front door, it was locked. He walked around the house to try to look inside, but couldn't see anything through the windows. When he reached the sliding glass doors leading to the master bedroom, he saw something that would change his life forever. 
So, Kath, William frantically was trying to get into the sliding door, but just could not open it. Now, what I read was that in his panicked state, he was trying to push the doors open. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know sliding doors don't go that way. So when he wasn't able to get in, he ran down the side of the house to the kitchen and he was able to kick in the kitchen door. As William ran to the master bedroom, he saw blood everywhere and passed 10-year-old Jessica Ryan dead on the floor right in front of the door to the master bedroom. On the floor of the master bedroom were the bodies of Doug, Peggy, and Josh Ryan, and they were covered in blood. And next to them was his son, Chris. He went to his son and touched his body and said it was cold and stiff. He looked over at the Ryans and Josh's eyes were open. So he was trying to ask him who had done this, but Josh wasn't able to talk and could only make unintelligible sounds. So William tried to use the Ryan's house telephone, but it did not work. And remember, again, 1983, there's no cell phones and we're on six acre horse property. So William had to get into his car and drive to a neighbor's house. San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputies and paramedics arrived quickly. They found eight-year-old Josh in shock and saw that his throat had been cut. Josh was flown by helicopter to Loma Linda University Hospital. Kath, these murders were so gruesome that a San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputy called them Manson style because of how they had been butchered. According to Dr. Irving Root, who performed the autopsies, in total, the four victims, so Doug, Peggy, and Jessica Ryan, and Chris Hughes, suffered 140 stabbing and chopping wounds, 28 fractures, and two severed fingers. At least three weapons had been used, an ice pick, a hatchet, and a knife, with the possibility that there was a fourth weapon. Dr. Root reported that it appears the injuries could have been inflicted quickly within one minute for each of the victims. The time of death was established between midnight and 2 a.m. based on the amount of food found in their stomachs. Josh arrived at the hospital in critical condition and doctors did not think he was going to survive. A clinical social worker from the hospital, Donald Gamundoy, interviewed Josh shortly after he was brought in. He quickly discovered Josh was unable to speak. So Donald wrote out all the letters of the alphabet and the numbers zero through nine and had Josh point at letters to spell words. He told the social worker that three or four men were responsible for the crime and he did not know the attackers but had seen them before. Deputy Sharp entered the emergency room and took over questioning. Josh told him that three Mexican men had come to his house on Saturday afternoon asking for work. He said he thought these three men killed his family and his friend Chris, but admitted that he never saw these men actually committing the murders or inside the house. And Kath, I read more than a few articles detailing how the deputy was doing a hand squeeze thing, like squeeze my hand for yes, you know, that kind of thing. So all of this communication is entirely nonverbal by this eight-year-old. And while he was waiting to undergo surgery. Correct. San Bernardino County Sheriff Floyd Tidwell spoke with the press at the hospital and said that the murders were not ritualistic at all just very brutal. I think he was trying to counter the Manson family comment. I totally agree with you. The sheriff said there was blood all over and it was evident that more than one weapon was used. Tidwell also announced that Josh was improving after undergoing a tracheotomy and in good shape after his surgery. Those were the days before HIPAA. Exactly. (laughs) 
Sheriff Tidwell declined to speculate on a possible motive except to say that there was no apparent robbery. He also said that more than one person may have taken part in the murders and an instrument believed to have been one of the murder weapons was found at the scene. He also said the family's station wagon was missing. So, Kath, at this press conference, Sheriff Tidwell also said that a neighbor of the Ryans found a hatchet in some weeds that was close to the Ryan residence. And, Kath, when they found the hatchet, it had blood and human hairs on it. A few hours after the murders, Sheriff Tidwell announced that they were looking for two men and a teenager who escaped from two different detention facilities. The men were identified as David Troutman, 25, and Alboro Nori, 31. Troutman and Nori both escaped from the California Institute for Men in Chino. Troutman escaped from the prison two days prior to the murders while walking through a hole in the chain link fence that encircled the prison. Nori escaped the day of the murders. So, Kath, as you know, I have a very close friend who was in prison. (laughs) You mean besides you? (laughs) It's the institution for men. Right. Well, you know. Um, I have a very close friend who works at a business that is near the prison. So, as we said, when Troutman escaped, he walked through a hole in a chain link fence that was surrounding the prison. Right. To this day, there is a chain link fence surrounding the prison. Maybe they didn't learn their lesson. And actually, they really haven't, because here's why. So, yeah, they do have barbed wire on top of it. But I visited my friend at her business. We've gone to lunch, things like that. So once a month on a Friday morning, the prison does a test of its alarm system for escaping prisoners. That's kind of terrifying. It is. Like you're sitting, you're a barista in like some coffee shop and all of a sudden the alarm goes off and you have to like be like, oh my God, is it Thursday? Is it Friday? Is it, what day is it? What day is it? Well, it's mostly industrial businesses that are around it. I see. So that they so don't So there's count? no barista there. Well, no, but I'm <laughs> no saying like barista. there's no barista there. Got there's it. not that. And they still continue to have a lot of people escape from that prison. That is terrifying. It absolutely is. Okay, that fence is obviously not electrified. I think somebody can at least do that. I would agree, but apparently they disagree. Maybe they don't have the budget for it or something, but it really little has changed. That's crazy. So those two men escaped from the California Institute for Men in Chino, and the 17-year-old fled from a detention facility called Boys Republic. Now, this is an institution for disadvantaged youths. Sounds like you said youths. <laughs> Does not sound like I said youths. What was that movie? Youths. Uh, My Cousin Vinny. Oh, that was great. <laughs> it was. <laughs> that institution to this day is still in Chino Hills, and it's actually near where the Ryan's house was. Now, Troutman, Nori, and this teenage boy were all serving sentences for burglary. Although authorities did not think that these three men were connected with each other, they still put an APB out for the three of them because police believed that if they were together, they were going to be headed to Phoenix or Flagstaff, Arizona, because that's where the teenager was from. And remember, the Ryan's car was missing. On Monday, the day after the murder, sheriff's deputies followed up on a call from a woman named Pam Smith. She called them after hearing they were looking for three men white or Hispanic, as potential suspects in the Ryan and Hughes murders. Ms. Smith told deputies that she was a regular at the Canyon Corral Bar in Chino Hills and was there on the night of the murders. There were three white men in the bar who she had never seen before, and they were acting strangely. She said from the bar's parking lot, you could see the Ryan property. So, Kath, I know she said that you could see the Ryan's house, Mm -hmm. but I got to tell you, because I do know Chino Hills a little bit. Do you know that bar? No, the bar's not there anymore. Okay. So I know the corner where the bar was. Okay. And Uh and (laughs) it's a CVS. (laughs) 
drugs, alcohol, whatever. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> but from that corner where the bar was to where the Ryan's property was, mm-hmm. it's a mile as the crow flies. Uh. So there's no way you could see the property other than, oh, look, is there a house out there? Right. And that's actually assuming there's no trees in the way, buildings, anything like that. That's interesting. So I am going to agree to disagree. I'll let Pam Smith know. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Investigators spoke with the bartender and the manager at the Canyon Corral, who both noticed the three men in the bar on the night of the murder. They said that they each had one beer before leaving about 9 p.m. The three then returned about two and a half hours later, but one of them was so intoxicated that the bartender refused to serve him. One of them was wearing a yellow or beige t-shirt, and one was wearing a blue shirt. There was no description of what the third man was wearing. The bar manager reported that she looked outside to confirm the men were leaving and saw one getting into a large, light-colored vehicle that could possibly have been the Ryan station wagon. Sheriff Tidwell held a late-night press conference two days after the murders on June 7, 1983. He told reporters that the killer or killers stayed in a vacant ranch house about 150 yards from the murder scene, either before or after the murders. Kathy and I are going to refer to this as the Lang House because the Langs were co-owners of this home and they were leasing it out to a tenant at the time of the murder. However, the tenant had moved out shortly before the murders, and about 90% of her stuff had already been removed from the Lang home. Sheriff's captain, Philip Schuyler, said they had found strong physical evidence at the Lang house, and there may have been more than one person staying there at the time. Deputies also found bloodstains and clothing in the house, and forensics investigators were checking for fingerprints. Sheriff Tidwell also announced at this press conference that one of the escapees from the Chino prison had been captured in South El Monte, which is about 30 miles west of Chino Hills in Los Angeles County. Alboro Nori was taken into custody within 48 hours of the murders when he was a passenger in a car that was pulled over for driving erratically. It was a simple routine stop, and deputies said Nori was using identification belonging to his brother, but was kind of suspicious to them because he was high on heroin when he was arrested. After two days of questioning, Nori was cleared of any connection to this case. The teenager had also been found by this time and was cleared of any connection to the case as well. The only remaining escapee was David Troutman. Now, Kath, two days after the murder, the San Bernardino County Sheriff's discovered that the escapee, David Troutman, was actually named Kevin Cooper. Do you know how they figured that out? Yeah, but I don't remember. It was... If I recall correctly, remember 1983, they didn't have quite the same ability to communicate. So they were communicating by letter. I honestly don't know how they were connected to Pennsylvania, but somehow they got connected to Pennsylvania, which is where Troutman was from. And when they had sent over fingerprints, Pennsylvania authorities were able to tell them that this man's name was really Kevin Cooper. Cooper actually grew up near Pittsburgh and he had a long criminal past that included stealing and burglary. And he was sentenced for the first time to a one to two year prison term in 1977 for burglarizing a home in Pittsburgh. But over the next five years, he was convicted and sentenced to jail twice for burglaries and released on probation in 1982. When he was in custodial settings in Pennsylvania, so whether he was a teenager or later when he was in minimum security prisons for the burglary, he escaped from these places 11 
times. Freaking Houdini. No kidding. Jeez. And in late 1982, he was actually in a Pennsylvania psychiatric facility where he was awaiting prosecution on charges stemming from the kidnap and rape of a girl. He escaped from there as well. And David Troutman was a fellow inmate at the psychiatric facility. And he grabbed his ID. Wow. So it was actually then Kathy revealed that Cooper's escape, he was the one who walked through the opening in the fence that surrounded the prison. It was actually an administrative error. He had been held since April 29th of 1983 in the medium security section of the prison. However, for some reason, something happened clerically and he was moved on June 2nd to the minimum security portion of the prison. Some secretary came and hung over and was like, get Kevin Cooper to minimum. Exactly. <laughs> like something lame. Oh, that's terrible. And he escaped that same day. Then California Governor George Duke Majin ordered an inquiry into what the heck happened. I'm paraphrasing. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what he did. Yeah. That was the letter. There might have been a swear word in there. I need to know what the heck happened. (laughs) (laughs) Three days after the murders, on July 8th, 1983, a funeral was held for Christopher Hughes at Our Lady of Assumption Church in Claremont, California, and he was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery. The day after that, a funeral service was held for Doug, Peggy, and Jessica Ryan at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Orange, California. I can't imagine how packed that church must have been. More than 550 people showed up. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Can you imagine Josh sitting in that pew? I don't know that he was. I don't know that he was out of the hospital by then, Kath. This is four days later. Okay, four days after the murder. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So I don't know that he was. And what I read and I don't know if this is actually true, was that authorities and his grandmother didn't tell him his family had been killed for a week or more. Oh, because I think they were concerned it would hamper his healing process. Yeah, I did not read that at all. I read it in a couple places. But again, you know, if we don't don't have the court records, it's hard to believe it. Yeah. The same day as the Ryan's funeral, Assistant Sheriff Chuck Follett informed the public that they found bloodstains, fingerprints, clothing, and opened food cans at the Lang House near the Ryan's home. At this point, investigators did say they were leaning more toward the belief that a single person committed the murders rather than it being a group of two or more. You know, Kath, that actually caused a little bit of controversy at the time. What do you mean, the finding that it was one person or the possibility that it was one person? Exactly. Not only was this a brutal crime of multiple people, but remember, the pathologist said that he thought three different weapons were involved. Right. However, you and I have talked about this. And in our discussion, we've kind of gotten to the point where it actually could have been one person. That's true, because it was after midnight. We do know that Josh was sleeping and he heard noises and took his friend Christopher down the hall. And we also read the parents were naked. So they were obviously in bed and unaware. And so probably sleeping. And so the perpetrator could have come in, immediately murder the father, and then taken care of the mother second. Right. And And then as the children come in, as they're waking up because they hear their mom screams, which is what we know. That's what awakened Josh. Correct. And his was the bedroom farther away. His sister's bedroom was actually closer to the master bedroom than his was. Right. So she probably heard it first and got up Mm -hmm. and then 
Yeah. So honestly, I mean, I understand based on the brutality and the sheer number of victims, but at the same time, it still could have happened. It could have happened that way. Yeah. But it is like there were three murder weapons and these three guys did come to the door looking for work. And there was all this conversation about these three guys in a bar. Right. So I could see when the sheriff announced this, people were like, no, that yeah. doesn't sound right. And actually, Kath, the person who was most critical of this theory was Peggy Ryan's mother. Really? Yeah. So she was actually also a chiropractor in Orange County and was very close to her family. And she said that just honestly, based again on the brutality and the number of people who were killed and the fact that the pathologist had opined there may have been three murder weapons, she did not see how it happened any other way. That's interesting. I did not read that. Yeah. On Thursday, June 9th, just four days after the murders, San Bernardino County DA Dennis Kottmeyer filed charges against Kevin Cooper, who at the time was still at large. Cooper was charged in the Chino Municipal Court with one count of attempted murder for allegedly slashing the throat of Josh Ryan and four counts of first-degree murder. Sheriff Floyd Tidwell told a news conference after the charges were filed that they had evidence that placed Kevin Cooper at the crime scene. Although the sheriff did not reveal what evidence they had that led them to believe Cooper was responsible, it was later revealed that physical evidence from the Lang house tied Kevin Cooper to the murders. Also on June 9th, a woman named Diana Roper contacted the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department regarding her then-boyfriend, Lee Furrow. Based upon the original theory that three suspects committed the crime, Diana believed that Furrow, her boyfriend, was one of the men. She based this belief on the fact that Furrow had returned to their home the night of the murders wearing bloody coveralls and arrived in a car matching the description of the Ryan vehicle. When Furrow arrived at their home that night, there were still some people who remained in the vehicle, according to Diana. Furrow then went into the house, changed out of his coveralls, and threw them on the closet floor. According to Diana, he only remained in the house approximately five minutes before returning to what she referred to as the station wagon. She also informed investigators that Furrow's hatchet was missing from his tool case on the night of the murders. Now, at this point, Calf, as we know, it was already made public that a bloody hatchet had been found on the side of the road a half mile from the Ryan house the day following the murders. In addition, Diana recalled that on the morning of the murders, she laid out a light brown colored beige Fruit of the Loom t-shirt for Furrow to wear that day. It matched the description of a bloody tan t-shirt recovered by the San Bernardino County Sheriff's near the Canyon Corral bar. And Diana, if you're laying out a Fruit of the Loom t-shirt for your honey bunny, <laughs> you need to step it up. <laughs> He might have mommy issues. Maybe. But, you know, the other thing, Kath, is that the police didn't take her very seriously. Right. Because she was a witch by trade. What? As in, like, eat the poison apple. Probably. <laughs> but said she had had visions about her boyfriend doing this. And that's why she knew that she needed to call the police. So I think she lost some credibility with that. But, Kath, she did present bloody coveralls to the police. So, you know, maybe it was from an animal sacrifice. <laughs> According to Diana, she had good reason to suspect her boyfriend. He was already a convicted killer 
and had only recently been released from prison. Almost 10 years prior to the murders in Chino Hills, Furrow was a member of a gang who murdered a 17-year-old girl named Mary Sue Kitts. And Kath, I know you like snitches, Uh but this is a different one. When Furrow was arrested, he turned on his gang and he told authorities that it was the leader of the gang who ordered him to strangle, dismember and throw Mary Sue Kitts' body into the Kern River, which is in central California. Yeah, I think it runs through Bakersfield. By ratting on the gang, he received a shorter sentence while the gang leader was given the death penalty. I'm actually surprised Furrow made it out of jail. Right. Like that he wasn't shanked or something. Exactly. Or shivved. (laughs) Or schlocked. (laughs) Six days after the murders, on June 11th, 1983, the Ryan family station wagon was found in the parking lot of St. Anthony Catholic Church in Long Beach. Okay. When I read that, I was like, no way. I know a ton of people who went to St. Anthony. After finding the car, a team of officers who believed that Kevin Cooper was likely holed up in the neighborhood staked out the vehicle and the surrounding area. The stakeout continued for almost eight hours before it was called off. Now, Kath, in the middle of this whole thing, in the middle of the stakeout, it was graduation day at St. Anthony High School. That means that Julianne, our mutual friend, was graduating on this day. I wonder if she knows about this. I'm going to have to find out. 194 seniors graduated in the gym That was right off the parking lot where the car was found. (laughs) Julianne, if you're listening, we hope you are. (laughs) Text us. Let us know. Exactly. (laughs) Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Killer D. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So at 4 a.m. on July 30th, 1983, a man who declined to give his name called the Coast Guard's Channel Island Station by ship to shore radio from a sailboat that was anchored off the coast of Santa Barbara. He said his 26-year-old wife had been raped at knife point. The Coast Guard contacted the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department, and just before dawn, the Sheriff's SWAT team boarded the Coast Guard cutter Point Judith. They came up on two boats that were next to each other and came up alongside the smaller boat, which was a sailboat. The Coast Guard commander used his bullhorn and told everyone on the boats to come up on deck and not to try and run or dive into the water. The smaller vessel, this is the sailboat, was owned by Owen and Angelica Handy, who had their five-year-old daughter with them. So three adults on the sailboat and the small child were on the deck when one of the men, Kath, immediately jumped into the water and started swimming towards a smaller rubber dinghy. He was trying to paddle himself to shore in this boat. Whose dinghy was it? It belonged to the boat that was tied up next to them. The bigger boat. The bigger boat. So Kath, here's what was funny. This man jumps in the water, swims over to the dinghy that's tied up at the other boat and starts paddling his little heart out. Attached to the Coast Guard cutter was a Zodiac. Do you know Mm -hmm. Zodiacs? One of those uh, ones that looks like it's a blow up boat. Yeah, exactly. Used by the Navy SEALs. Mm. These are fast, stealthy, nimble boats. This guy did not stand a chance. Even with his rowing prowess. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) In his rubber dinghy. It's like the Coast Guard was like, do not jump over the side. And he's like, bye. Exactly. Oh, did you tell me to jump? Okay. Exactly. (laughs) The man trying to row, row, row his boat ashore (laughs) identified himself as Angel Jackson, and he was arrested at 8.52 a.m. So the reason the Coast Guard had been contacted and the sheriffs had been called out was because of this alleged rape that had been reported. So, Kath, what happened was when the Handys and their daughter were in their boat that was anchored just off of Santa Cruz Island, which is near the coast of Santa Barbara, and there were other boats that were anchored out there. And so they had met this other couple who had a larger boat with a dinghy. When they met this other couple, the couple invited the Handys and their guest, Angel Jackson, who was on the boat with them, to come over that night for a fish fry and a few drinks. At some point, the Handys went back to their sailboat. Remember, they had a little girl. And at 4 a.m., The man who owned the bigger boat woke up to his wife's screams. She was being raped at knife point by Angel Jackson. So the husband goes and makes the ship to shore call. And then the Coast Guard and the sheriffs come and arrest Angel. The sailboat owners told deputies that they had had their boat in dry dock in Ensenada, Mexico, which is just south of Rosarita Beach. And they were working on patching their boat up. It's a 32-foot sailboat, so it's a pretty big size, but it wasn't one of the sleek luxury models. I read that the boat was kind of a dump. Yeah. And that these people had a hand-to-mouth existence. Yes, that's very true. So they said on June 9th, a man had come up to them on the dock and introduced himself as Angel Jackson and asked them for work. The Handys understood that Jackson needed food and a place to stay. And of course, they were kind of in a similar predicament just in terms of this hand-to-mouth existence. And so they said, hey... If you'll help us patch up our boat, you could stay on the boat with us. So Jackson agreed. And after they had worked on the boat for two days, the Handys decided that they were going to set sail for San Francisco and they allowed Angel Jackson to join them. So they made several stops and then anchored in Pelican Bay near Santa Barbara, which is where they met the owners of this larger boat. So that's how they got there. And that's how he was arrested. Now, when Angel Jackson was arrested, he was taken to the Santa Barbara County Jail. About seven hours later, 
Detective Bill Moore noticed that their rape suspect resembled a wanted poster on the squad room wall. He went back to the cell where they were holding Angel Jackson and asked the man, are you Kevin Cooper? And the man said yes. They were able to confirm his identity through fingerprints. Dun, 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 dun. No kidding. For real. So the first thing they do is they call the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department and they learned that Kevin Cooper, who they'd been searching for this whole time, had pretty much been on the sailboat the entire time when he was on the run. And just for some context, San Bernardino and Santa Barbara are, what do you think, Kath? Like 100 miles apart? Oh, or easily. 150? Yeah, probably 150. Yeah. Kevin Cooper was arraigned for the murders of Doug, Peggy, Jessica Ryan, and Chris Hughes on August 12, 1983, surrounded by heavy security. Cooper pleaded not guilty to the four counts of murder with special circumstances and the one count of attempted murder for Josh, as well as one count of escape from a state prison. Now, if Cooper were convicted of two or more of the murders, he could face the death penalty due to the special circumstances allegation of murdering more than one person. On October 17, 1984, more than 16 months after the Chino Hills murders, a jury of seven women and five men were seated. The trial was moved to San Diego County because of pretrial publicity. Opening statements began six days later. The San Bernardino County District Attorney, Dennis Kottmeyer, told the jury that several pieces of physical evidence linked Cooper to the murders, including a shoe print connecting Cooper to the crime scene and traces of prison-issued tobacco found in the Ryan's stolen station wagon. In his opening statement, defense attorney David Negus told a jury that Josh Ryan, the survivor of the Chino Hills Massacre, once told a reserve deputy that Kevin Cooper was not the killer after he saw Cooper's picture on a television newscast. The defense attorney, who, by the way, was also a public defender, told the jury that investigators stopped following leads four days after the murder when Cooper was charged with the crimes, despite evidence that might have linked others to the killing. One of the witnesses at trial that garnered a lot of sympathy, as you can imagine, was Chris Hughes's father, the little 11-year-old boy who was murdered. His father, William, fought back tears throughout his entire testimony and testified about his gruesome discovery on the morning of the murder and that his son was stone cold when he touched him. The prosecution called dozens of witnesses, many of whom were investigators, medical personnel, and expert witnesses. And the testimony revealed that at the Lang house, this was the house that was 150 yards from the crime scene, investigators found the presence of blood in the shower and the bathroom sink at the Lang residence and the hair found in the bathroom sink that was consistent with that of Jessica and Doug Ryan. And so, Kath, what was important about the finding of the blood and the hair at the Lang residence in the bathroom was that you had mentioned the tenant had moved out just a few days before the murders. Right. In the few days before the murders, when she was moving out, one of the things she did was clean the bathroom. As we all know, anybody who's moved out of an apartment, you've got to clean everything top to bottom. But she had bleached the showers, the sink and the toilet so that anything found there was not a remnant from when she was there. It clearly was something that had happened after she had cleaned. Mm -hmm, exactly. There was also evidence that the hatchet that was found a half a mile from the murder scene that was covered with dried blood and human hair 
was missing from the Lang house. And the sheath for the hatchet was found in the closet where Kevin Cooper had stayed. So we find out later that he basically slept in this closet at the Lang house just to be not seen by the public after his escape from prison. Also found at the Lang house was Cooper's semen that was on a blanket in this closet that he was sleeping in. Now, at the Ryan house, the murder scene, there was one drop of blood that analysts said belonged to an African-American male, and Cooper is black, that was found on a wall in the hallway opposite where Jessica's body was lying. Also found at the Ryan's home were three shoe prints. Two were partial and one was nearly complete. And according to testimony, these shoe prints were consistent with Cooper's shoe size and the type of shoe issued at the Chino prison. Also found at the murder scene was a hand-rolled cigarette butt and a brand of tobacco that was provided to inmates at the Chino prison. This tobacco was also found in the Ryan station wagon when it was recovered. From the station wagon, investigators also found a fragment of a hair that was consistent with Cooper's pubic hair. And remember, 1983, they weren't testing DNA. They were looking for consistencies and similarities and blood types. As you can imagine, one of the most anticipated witnesses in this trial was Joshua Ryan. A videotape of the now 10-year-old Joshua Ryan was shown to jurors after attorneys for both sides agreed to taping his testimony to try and spare him any unnecessary emotional trauma. In the hour-long video, Josh said he recalled seeing a shadow in the bedroom, but said it could have been someone like his mom. When District Attorney Dennis Kopmeyer asked how many shadows he saw, Josh replied just one, but he couldn't tell what the shadow was doing. Josh said on camera that he remembered being awakened that night by a scream and then waking up his friend Chris, telling him, get up, I hear something. Josh and Chris walked down the dark hallway then towards his parents' bedroom, but stopped when they saw Josh's sister Jessica lying at the door of the master bedroom. Chris kept going into the parents' bedroom, but Josh hid for a short time in the laundry room. He eventually went into the master suite, where he said he was immediately attacked and lost consciousness. D.A. Kottmeyer asked if he remembered anything at all after seeing Jessica in the hall, and Josh said no. Kottmeyer asked if he had tried to forget what happened that night, and Josh said he had. When asked how, Josh said he thinks happy thoughts to help him forget. On January 3rd, 1985, so we're now 18 months after the murders, Kevin Cooper took the stand in his own defense. He admitted he escaped from the Chino prison on June 2nd, 1983, but denied killing Doug and Peggy Ryan, their daughter Jessica, and their son's friend Chris Hughes. Cooper testified that he had just walked out of the minimum security section of the prison and hid on the top of a roof at a nearby lumber yard until late afternoon. He told the jurors he made his way to the Lang house down the hill from the Ryans and hid there for two days before leaving on June 4th. Cooper testified he stayed in the closet to stay out of sight. So, Kathy, the next day the prosecution had its first chance to cross-examine Kevin Cooper. Immediately, the district attorney gets up with the axe that has been introduced into evidence as being one of the murder weapons and starts swinging it around the courtroom. Oh, my God. Saying, (laughs) hey, Kevin, do you have any doubt that this is the weapon that was used to kill the three members of the Ryan family and Chris Hughes? Oh, my God. So Cooper's attorney, the public defender, what was he doing? 
I'm sure he was hopping up and down. <laughs> As was the judge. So the public defender, David Nagus, immediately objected. And Superior Court Judge Richard Garner immediately agreed. Right. Sustained. Put exactly. that hatchet down and he stop did. waving it around the courtroom. He absolutely Ooh. cut it off. Exactly. Yeah. Cut off the line of questioning. D.A. Kottmeyer cross-examined Kevin Cooper for three days. And Cooper, the entire time, very calmly denied that he committed the murders. Five months after trial began on February 19, 1985, the jury deliberated for five days before returning with its verdict. Guilty. Kevin Cooper was convicted on four counts of murder with special circumstances and for the attempted murder of Josh Ryan. On May 15th, Judge Richard Garner imposed the death sentence recommended by the jury, calling the murders cruel and calculated. Now, Kevin Cooper has maintained his innocence for three decades and claimed he was framed by corrupt police. Throughout the course of Cooper's unsuccessful appeals, more evidence came to light about the San Bernardino County Sheriff Floyd Tidwell. In December 1988, three and a half years after Cooper's conviction, Sheriff Tidwell was found to be unlawfully distributing concealed carry licenses. He would issue permits to friends who requested them and others, often for longer periods of time than is legally allowed. And in May of 2004, Tidwell pleaded guilty to four felony counts for taking 523 guns from evidence between 1983 and 1991. So Kevin Cooper pursued appeals from his conviction and death sentence throughout state and federal courts, and every appellate court concurred with the original conviction and sentence, basically reinforcing the trial court's administration of the trial. On February 10, 2004, Kevin Cooper was set to be executed at San Quentin State Prison by way of lethal injection. Hours before his execution, it was put on hold by the Ninth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, like this total last-ditch Hail Mary worked. The Ninth Circuit remanded the case back to the district court and ordered that two DNA tests be performed on evidence so that the question of Mr. Cooper's innocence can be answered once and for all. The two tests were a mitochondrial test of blonde hairs found in 10-year-old Jessica Ryan's hand, as well as a test for the presence of EDTA on the bloody tan t-shirt. As you know, Kath, EDTA is a preservative agent. So if they were to donate blood, for example, EDTA would be found in the blood because it's added to preserve it. The reason they were testing for EDTA on the bloody t-shirt is that Kevin Cooper alleged that the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department planted his blood and therefore he said EDTA should be present in the blood. His allegation was that back when he was arrested for burglary, a blood vial was taken and that he was saying San Bernardino County Sheriff's use his old blood, which would have had this preservative EDTA, to place at the crime scene and on the shirt that was collected as evidence. The results of the test confirmed that Cooper's DNA was found on the shirt, which confirmed the prosecution's theory that Cooper was guilty. However, the defense still opined that it was blood that had been planted by dirty cops. In 2016, 
Kevin Cooper filed a petition for executive clemency. At this point, the case had attracted national interest after a New York Times columnist named Nicholas Kristof wrote a provocative and compelling article and claimed Kevin Cooper, a black man, was framed by the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department and had been sentenced to death for a crime he did not commit. The article attracted the attention of then U.S. Senator and now Vice President Kamala Harris and reality TV star Kim Kardashian. I'm not necessarily one who likes when movie stars get behind certain causes just because you just don't know. But at the same time, like, I understand why this would have made Kevin Cooper's attorneys very happy because this kind of pressure carries weight. Right. You know, I feel like Kim Kardashian could tweet something and, you know, seven million people are like, yes, master. You know, I mean, (laughs) you know, the one thing that the Kardashians did do well for society that I I think I've told you this before, I may have mentioned it even on a podcast, was make big butts acceptable. (laughs) (laughs) So for all you women out there like me, whose upper torso is about three sizes smaller than their derriere. (laughs) Thank you, Kardashians. (laughs) On December 24th, 2018, then California Governor Jerry Brown approved DNA testing on the T-shirt, the hatchet and the sheath. In 2018, Lee Furrow, whose name was given to investigators by his girlfriend, Diana, he agreed to give Kevin Cooper's defense team a sample of his DNA. Kath, one of the reasons it was important for the defense to have his DNA is because on those items that you mentioned, some of them had DNA from an unidentified individual. However, Lee Furrow's DNA was not a match. Boom. Two months after then-Governor Brown ordered the DNA, California had a brand new governor. California's newly elected governor, Gavin Newsom, ordered additional DNA testing of hair samples collected from the victim's hands, as well as a green button that investigators said linked Cooper to the crime. Now, the defense alleged that all of these items were planted, but their theory was that with the sophisticated new methods in DNA testing, they were going to uncover the actual culprit who wore that brown T-shirt on a habitual basis. So basically, Kath, the tan T-shirt, what the defense attorneys were saying was this. Hey, it's been tested in the past, but only little tiny pieces of it. We want to test the collar and we want to test the armpits of the T-shirt to see If there was any residual DNA, we're going to call it touch DNA or skin cell DNA of somebody who would have worn this T-shirt habitually because they were saying it wasn't Kevin Cooper. They were saying any blood on that T-shirt was planted by the sheriff's department. And therefore, we have to find other DNA like skin cell DNA on the T-shirt and run this through the FBI's CODIS database in order to find the actual killer. So Gavin Newsom signs this executive order allowing for DNA testing. He then appoints a retired judge to serve as a supervisor for the testing process and has the testing conducted by an independent laboratory agreed upon by the San Bernardino County DA's office, as well as Kevin Cooper's attorneys. Once the tests were completed, Kevin Cooper's lawyers and the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office had very different views on whether the evidence supported Kevin Cooper's claims of innocence. Which brings us to May 28, 2021, almost 38 years after the murder of the Ryan family and 11-year-old Chris Hughes 
Governor Newsom appointed a law firm to review court records and all the facts and evidence in the case, including evidence that did not appear in the trial and appellate records, along with all the DNA test results that had been ordered in the case. Cooper's lead attorney was a man named Norman Heil, and he called the governor's order gratifying. Now, Cap, this is a man who worked over 10 years pro bono trying to get Kevin Cooper's conviction overturned or an order retesting the evidence. So attorney Heil was quoted as saying, we are confident that a thorough review will demonstrate that Kevin Cooper is innocent and should be released from prison. In fact, Kath, in 2022, the American Bar Association gave Norman Heil an award for all of the work he had performed for Kevin Cooper's case. Okay, so Kath, in research for this case, I found this letter and it's dated May 5th, 2022, and it's written to Governor Newsom by Jason Anderson, who was the current San Bernardino County District Attorney. I'm just going to read an excerpt from the letter, and it basically says, For over 30 years, every competent and empowered trier of fact and reviewing state and federal court have ruled that Kevin Cooper murdered four people and tried to murder a fifth in the sanctity of their own home. Show integrity, consistency, and reliance on those same things by terminating the innocence investigation you ordered for Kevin Cooper. The record and precedent confirm Cooper's guilt. Then he goes on to say, You have to wake up. Our office will fight like hell. The victim's family members will not be silenced. I am furious that my daughter and son could grow up in a California that is less safe than the one they were born into if you reduce Kevin Cooper's death sentence or release him from custody while ignoring every court's prior decision of guilt in this case. As you say... Boom. I know. Seriously, man. Like That's I, some serious clanking balls there. I was just going to say, like, I hear the cojones clanking <laughs> from two counties away. <laughs> so on January 13th, 2023, so just about a week ago, the results of the comprehensive investigation by independent counsel were presented to the governor. After 38 years and almost being executed, Was Kevin Cooper innocent? The answer in the report was no. Scott Schwebke with the Orange County Register wrote that this extensive and fresh analysis of DNA evidence conducted as part of Cooper's clemency request showed that the evidence of Cooper's guilt was, quote, extensive and conclusive, disproving Cooper's claim at trial that police planted DNA evidence to frame him. Now, San Bernardino County District Attorney Jason Anderson, who wrote that scathing letter Kathy just read, said he was not surprised by the DNA findings because every other determining body came to the same conclusion. He said he hoped it finally gave closure to the victim's families and ended this chapter of the criminal prosecution. He said there should not be any more questions about Kevin Cooper's guilt. Lawyers for the law firm that represented Kevin Cooper said at the beginning when this was ordered that they were confident that this would prove their client innocent, now said that Kevin Cooper has suffered imprisonment as a death row inmate for more than 38 years for a gruesome crime he did not commit. 
We are therefore extremely disappointed by the special counsel's report to the California Board of Parole hearings and disagree strongly with its findings. Now, Josh Ryan, the only survivor and really the biggest victim in this case, completely continues to attempt to have just a normal life. He avoids publicity and he tries not to draw attention to his difficult past. He's remained fairly quiet about all matters of this case. And as we said, it's been in the news for almost four decades now. And as far as I can tell, he hasn't made any statements or comments in the last four years. Right. The last comment he made was in 2018 when he wrote to then Governor Jerry Brown, Mm -hmm. stating that he believed that Kevin Cooper was guilty and should be punished for his transgressions. In the letter, Josh Ryan wrote, Kevin Cooper is on my mind every day. He is a nightmare which plays over and over in my head. I can never get away from him. As always, thanks for listening. We have great news for anybody who lives in or around the Chattanooga, Tennessee area or has always wanted to take a trip to Chattanooga. (laughs) A little trip. We would recommend for everyone. We are going to be at the Literary Inc. convention there from March 3rd through 5th. This is a book-themed tattoo convention, which has a serious slant toward Harry Potter, which (laughs) I love and Kathy likes. (laughs) Jennifer from Mainline Tattoos was kind enough to invite us, even though neither of us have tattoos. But, and and I'm not going to get drunk and come home with one. <laughs> not. <laughs> and if she does, I'll document it and send it out to everyone. <laughs> so if you're interested in attending, Kathy and I are going to do Q&A sessions on Friday and Saturday, March 3rd and 4th. And then on March 5th, we are actually going to do a live podcast episode. So you guys can hear how many actual mistakes we make. <laughs> and how much we really swear. Exactly. <laughs> So if you're interested in going or finding out more about it or purchasing tickets, you can go to their website at literaryinc.co, C-O, not com, co. And we hope we see all of you there. It looks to be a fantastic time and we're super excited about it. And show up, surprise us. Buy us drinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kathy's treating for alcohol. No, no that's what they're buying drinks. <laughs> we promise we'll accept them all. <laughs> Don't forget we're on TikTok. So if you're not following us there, please do. Please go. Please like. Please follow. And of course, if you're not following us on Instagram or Facebook at Killer Destinations Podcast, please do so. Oh, by the way, the TikTok is at Killer Destinations Pod. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.